You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is my interview with the writer and director for the outfit, Graham Moore. You've been all over the world. You could have a shop anywhere you like, and yet you're here. It doesn't terribly much matter where I am. I have my shears. What else does a man need besides his shears? This isn't art. This is a craft. You cannot make something good until you understand the customer. Do we let all of our customers keep black boxes in back? If we only allowed angels to be customers, soon we'd have no customers at all. Please, sir, I don't want any trouble. I need you to listen carefully. There are a thousand blue boys out there hunting for this. And if they find it, I start shooting, you follow? Making matters worse, there are a thousand racket boys hunting for it too. And if they find it, they start shooting, you follow? Don't want to be involved in whatever it is you do. You know exactly what it is that we do. Whoa, full house tonight, huh? Have you ever heard of The Outfit? The Outfit is a network of every big-time crew from Santa Monica to Coney Island. And tonight, they've sent us a message. They're hiding something, my friend. I'm gonna need that tape, pal, right now. Why don't you try and take it? Gentlemen, it's gonna be a long night. Sew him up. What? I can't. Sew him up. You need to tell me what really happened in here tonight. Now. You got five seconds to tell me what happened. Open the trunk. What? Open the trunk and grab his arms or I'm hiding two bodies. Five. A number of things about me that you don't know. <laughs> Four. What's the tape, Francis? Three. I'm telling you, this is the truth. You want to survive the night? You look them dead in the eyes, and you pretend you're one of them. Hi, Graham. Hello. Hi, this is Matt Negley with the Next Best Picture Podcast. How are you today? I'm well. Thanks so much for chatting. No, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me today about your feature directorial debut, The Outfit, which is coming to theaters on March 18th from Focus Features. How are you feeling about that? Your first feature film, that must be pretty exciting. Um. It's a pretty special thing to be here in March of 2022, getting to release my first film in movie theaters. You know, right? If it's, yeah, if the past couple of years have taught uh, me anything, it's, it's not to take something like this for granted. You know, I, I grew up seeing movies in the theater and sort of getting to enjoy that communal experience with an audience full of people. And I, I can't, I've now gotten to see it sort of in a room full of people, rooms full of strangers a few times, and it's there's just nothing like it. It's a it's a pretty special experience. Yeah, yeah. And this is a very fun and engaging movie, I think. It's the kind of film that, you know, I always say, like, you know, not every film needs to necessarily change the world, but you can make a fun adult thriller that has suspense, intrigue, uh, compelling characters, and provides enough entertainment for anyone out there that is interested still in this form of storytelling. And that's exactly what I think the outfit provides. Oh, I'm so uh, thank you for saying that. Really, it means the world. That's that's exactly kind of what I was going for from the very from the very beginning. And I think what we were all going for. You know, I I grew up loving those sorts of twisty, turny crime thrillers from The Usual Suspects to Memento. Um, uh, to the kind of 
40s and 50s film noirs that we're obviously kind of referencing so much over the course of this film. And, you know, th- th- these are the sorts of films that, that I've always loved. Exact same. I grew up watching uh, those exact movies that you referenced there as well. And there's just something about the way that those stories unfold uh, and preserving their twists for the audience. Um, I also got to, you know, comment and say, I think you might have set a new record for the amount of twists in a film with the outfit. (laughs) (laughs) I thank you for saying so. I appreciate that. Um, and I'm glad that, that registered. You know, it's funny. We, we um, my co-writer Jonathan McLean and I talked a lot about that kind of early on in the process. That you know, once we sort of knew what the basic story was, and we knew um, it had the sort of confined spatial nature. The whole thing kind of takes place on this one very large set. Um, you know, that, that one of the things we could do to sort of keep keep the story exciting was lots of twists and turns. I mean, love films with kind of lots of twists. And I think we were. We'd seen things, we'd seen films we liked that had kind of one big twist at the end, and I think one of the one of the challenges we set for ourselves here was, what if we do something that that actually has three or four? There, there's no kind of there isn't one big twist at the end. It's a series of twists, um, kind of all in the last 30, 40 minutes, each of which reframes the story we've been watching in a different way. Um, and I think that's it's funny. It's been um, part of, I think, the experience of watching it with, you know, audiences. Audiences are really smart, right? They know it's a kind of twisty crime thriller. They know there are going to be twists. They're, they're trying to spot them from the very beginning. And then you sort of get the first or the second of those twists that an audience is going, oh, okay, that was the big twist. Cool. <laughs> I'm with you. And then four minutes later, here's another one. And they're going, wait, 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 wait. There's another one? Um, <laughs> and, and that becomes a fun... Um, a fun dynamic to get to explore with them. And on the same level, you know, we always felt like we wanted to create twists in the story that weren't, they weren't simply twists for their own sake, but they were actually revealing and exploring depths of character and character dynamics. They're, they're coming from these sort of emotional places. And when we get these turns in the story, um, they actually give us greater emotional access to our main characters. I like that. I like that a lot. And the character of Leonard is one that, you know, without revealing too much here, multifaceted, uh, very layered. And you have one of the world's greatest actors uh, conveying all of that to the audience in Mark Rylance. And he does so in such a subtle and unassuming way that I just found uh, that performance that the longer the movie went on, the more that performance just worked over me and played me as an audience member like a fiddle. <laughs> it hit at every single beat that it needed to um, in talking about what it is that you're discussing here. Can you you, um, just talk about what it was like meeting Mark, uh, the conversations you guys had about the character and him coming on board? Yeah, I mean, I'm so glad that I'll register with you because I think that was was actually something Mark and I talked a lot about as we were filming it. You know, there's no, there is no detail that escapes Mark Rylance's attention. There, there's no element of the character or element of the filmmaking process too small for him to notice. You know, he reminds me so much of his character, this kind of expert craftsman who has spent decades and decades of his life training to perfect this one kind of specific and esoteric craft. I think the way the character of Leonard has spent decades of his life perfecting the craft of clothes making, Mark has spent decades 
perfecting the craft of acting, and I think it shows every single day. Um, You know, he has such a particular... He's so specific with every single moment. You know, I remember one of the questions he would ask me sometimes before before take, something we talk about a lot, was he'd come to me and say, hey, how, how much of my actual inner thoughts and feelings do you want to be able to read on my face in this moment? Do you want 40%? Do you want 60%? Do you want 80%? Um, and it's funny, we would do takes a couple different ways, right? Right? We do, show me 20% of what you're feeling this take. Now let's do one where you're showing me 65%. And Mark is such an amazing craftsperson that he can he can sort of precisely express that down to the last decimal place. That's incredible. That really is. I, I mean, I can't even imagine what it must be like working on set and being opposite him and seeing such a master uh, work to that capacity and that high level of specificity. It, it must have been, uh, I imagine, exciting for the whole cast, too, to be bouncing off of him. Yeah, I mean, Mark is such, Mark is not only a great actor himself, but he is such an actor's actor, and I think has such a, he comes from a theatrical background, um, and I mean, not background, it's, you know, he's, I think he's doing a play tonight, I mean, he's still, <laughs> most of what he does in his what, life. What, what time of the day is it? Oh yeah, Mark Rylance is doing a play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I think that is, um, it's, it's the morning here in LA right now, so I think he's literally on stage in London as we speak. Yeah. Um, and as, as he is almost every night. And, and so but I think from his time in the theater, Mark really thinks a lot about the troupe of actors in a film as being a company. And Mark wants to create a company environment with all of them. You know, so, so he, he works very closely with all of them. He's really collaborative. Um, you know, Mark is, is the kind of actor who, when, if, if an extra comes on set to... Um, who doesn't even have any lines, someone's just sort of just showing up in the background of a scene, um, you know, Mark goes up to them at the beginning of the day and says, hi, my name is Mark. I'm so excited to act with you today. And when they leave at the end of the day, he walks up and he shakes their hand and says, hi, thank you so much for playing with me today. Um, you know, he, he, he uses the word play a lot. Like, that's what he does with other actors. They're playing together. They're experimenting together. And I was so lucky on this film to have time for um, a pretty expensive, extensive rehearsal period before we started shooting. So that meant that me and Mark and the rest of the cast got to just bounce around a rehearsal room um, in, in the west of London um, doing exercises, playing games. You know, Mark loves playing games with the other actors. Um, he plays Foursquare, um, which I don't know if you've ever played. It's this, I, I used to play when I was a kid. It's this you have four squares and a ball, and you're bouncing the ball back and forth at each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's, he loves kind of playing these quick ball games with the other actors. So they're all, which at first we thought was just a kind of fun icebreaker. But then we realized that, that no, 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 he's, he's doing this to get them all watching each other's subtlest moves. That, you know, if Dylan O'Brien kind of moves to the right a little bit, Mark, because they're playing this game, you know, Mark can see it, Zoe Deutsch can see it, we're all kind of, they're watching each other, they're paying attention to each other, they're really kind of clued into each other, so that then when we're on set and the cameras start rolling, if, if something goes a little different in a moment, if something, the wind blows a different direction, they can all kind of respond to it as a group. Yeah, 
And I think that theatrical background uh, for Mark definitely plays into that tremendously. Um, as someone who has acted on stage before, I know that camaraderie and uh, that level of rehearsal, too, is essential. So I, I love hearing those little uh, behind the scenes details there. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. You mentioned before, uh, and just speaking about theatricality, that this is a one-location film, and there are many others like it. Uh, but I want to know, though, was this something that was born out of the pandemic budgetary reasons? Was it always just the way it was going to be from the scripting stage? And depending on you know which of those it ultimately was, maybe it's a combination of a few of them. Um, I want to know if there are other single location movies that you look to for reference on how to shoot, frame, and tell this story. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a it's a funny thing. Um, we had always written it to be a single location film um, since years before the pandemic. I think certainly if, I don't know, back in 2018, 2019, when we were writing it, if you told me that the fact that the kind of contained nature of the film would make it ideal to shoot during a global pandemic, I would have said, global pandemic? What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> That's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, that, that seems it was not foremost in our planning. Um, no, we sort of had this idea early on that because, because the character is a bit of a hermit, you know, he's kind of locked himself away in this tailor shop and, and is trying to ignore the outside world. He is, he's sort of locked himself behind these closed doors and solely devoted himself to the craft of making these beautiful, perfect objects that because he doesn't leave the shop 
what if the camera never leaves the shop either? That was kind of one of our initial questions. And, and we found it really exciting from a design perspective, from a writing perspective, you know, and we found that it kind of, we found that setting the film in the shop rather than feeling like a sort of, I don't know, filmic conceit, instead seemed to allow us greater emotional access to the main character. You know, we, Mark is in every scene of the film, he's virtually in every frame of the film. We, we never go anywhere he doesn't go, we never see anything he doesn't see, we never hear anything he doesn't hear, and he never leaves the shop. So, so we don't either. Um, it felt like it felt like that made it a sort of more emotional story, um, and I mean, it, it would sort of ended up being oddly lucky in a way that ended up being a, a useful thing to to shoot sort of all bubbled up during the pandemic. But I always kind of thought of it as being in this great tradition of single location films from Sidney Lumet's Twelve Angry Men, um, which. You know, if you've seen the outfit, you can tell how much I borrow from Twelve Angry Men constantly. Oh yeah, there's probably no film. I mean, yeah, I think Dick Pope, our cinematographer, and I probably talked about Twelve Angry Men every single day that that we were making this. You know, in terms of blocking, in terms of moving bodies around this space, and designing a space that will never get boring. But you can designing a space and a way of moving characters around the space that can not only stay exciting for two hours, but get progressively more exciting over the course of the film's running time, which I think 12 Angry Men certainly does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we obviously looked at Hitchcock's rope a lot. Um, there are some pretty, <laughs> pretty direct, I guess the polite word would be homage uh, to rope in the middle of the film. Uh, yeah, outright yeah. theft would maybe be another way of describing our relationship to, to rope in a, in a pretty significant um beat in the middle of the film, but I clearly love it. I think Hitchcock's film Lifeboat is actually sort of an undiscussed or a, a not as frequently discussed kind of single location masterpiece. Um, we also looked at later things like like Death Trap um, with Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve, which I really, really love. Mm. Um, it felt like there was this kind of tradition of single location films that, that use their contained setting to be to, to, to be sort of uniquely cinematic. Um, you know, I remember early on in the process I read, it's funny, this little thing that stuck with me, I read an interview with, um, I forget the man's name, he was a, he's the head chef at 11 Madison Park, the kind of very ritzy, you know, three Michelin-starred restaurant in New York City, very kind of fancy chef. And I remember reading this interview with him where he was talking about how any chef can make something that tastes interesting with 100 ingredients, you know, if you throw 100 ingredients in a pot, something you've never tasted before is going to come out of it. Um, but that he was really interested in what a chef could do with only three ingredients. Mm. And it's funny, that was one of those things that just stuck with me a lot throughout the filmmaking process because it felt like that's what we were trying to do is, is kind of limit the number of ingredients and turn that into not a detriment but an advantage, you know, the, the sort of one big set, there are only seven speaking parts over the course of the entire film. And so I think from a filmmaking standpoint, you know, the, the, the question every day was, this isn't a constraint, it's an advantage. How do we look at it that way? Yeah. You have a couple of uh, people working on this film with you. 
that I couldn't help but notice also worked on the Oscar winning film for yourself, uh, The Imitation Game, including Alexander Desplat, the composer, William Goldenberg, the uh, editor. Dick Pope, though, uh, didn't work on The Imitation Game, but he did shoot Mr. Turner uh, the same year uh, that you guys were making the press rounds for The Imitation Game. I'm curious to know, did you meet him like during that time and you stayed in touch or did you guys get in contact another way? And can you speak to the work that uh, Desplat and Goldenberg were able to uh, help provide to fulfill your vision? Yeah, it's funny. Um, Dick and I never met back in 2014, 2015 when we were promoting... Um, I, guess I was doing the awards tour of the Imitation Game, and he was doing the awards tour um, for Mr. Turner. Um, if we did, we if we've talked about it. I, we certainly don't remember it. Maybe we shook hands or something, but I have no <laughs> memory of meeting him back then. Um, though I've been a long admirer of his work, and obviously that film is just one jewel in his extensive crown of kind of beautiful films. And it's funny, I think because he's made so many films with Mike Lee, we often forget what a wide variety of styles and tones Dick has shot in. Yes. Um, he has this, this beautifully extensive body of work. Um, I mean, honestly, since from before I was born, um, which if he heard me say that, he would frown um, <laughs> aggressively in my direction. But I, but I think, um, yeah, because he's done so many, um, you know, from like Queen music videos to... Um, uh, to obviously all those films with Mike Lee, but even those are to something like Motherless Brooklyn just a few years ago, um, and The Illusionist, which I think is really beautiful looking, um, and, and all sort of quite different different pieces. Um, and I, I think I will say about, about, I can certainly say about Billy Goldenberg and Alexander Desplat, the yes, they both worked on Imitation Game with me. We all became pretty close doing that. I think Billy Goldenberg and I, in particular, got to be very, we became really good friends making that film. You know, um, I, I did not direct Imitation Game. Um, I wrote it, and my friend Morton Tilden directed it. And, you know, I think I learned so much from Morton. He, he's so um, sort of unego driven as a filmmaker and as a person. You know, he invited me into rehearsals every day and on set every day and in post-production every day. And I was sort of always by his side, over the course of the process of making Imitation Game. And so I learned so much from it, and I got to become so close to people like Billy and Alexandra, um, these kind of great craftspeople and department heads whose work I'd love so much. And I, I give Morton um, so many thanks for that. Um, it was, and it was, it was a huge, honestly, it, it meant the world to me when you know, we were starting to put together this film, and I, I talked to Billy, and then I talked to Alexandra Desplat, and um, that they were... Um, I don't know, that they thought I was um, unmonstrous enough um, over the course of the Imitation Game that they were willing to, to come and do, do this film with me. And my first film as a director, that, that people like, that someone like Billy Goldenberg would trust me as a filmmaker meant the world, because Billy has cut, not just Imitation, but he's, I mean, Billy has cut a bunch of my favorite films ever made. I mean, Billy cut Heat, Billy cut The Insider, um, Miami Vice, Billy cut... Uh, Argo and Zero Dark Thirty. Um, you know, Billy has made a, many of my favorite films, and he's made a bunch of films with Alexandra before. And I mean, there are not, I don't know that there are more esteemed living film composers than Alexandra Desplat. Mm -hmm. So, you know, getting, calling him and having him say, yes, I trust you. Um, I'm excited to do this with you, um, especially on a film kind of this small, um, was pretty 
it was uh, quite a pat on the back to, to get to work with some people like that. I love that. That's really, really phenomenal to hear. I understand that you're a very busy guy. You have a lot of projects outside of uh, even the film world. Uh, but, you know, from the time that Imitation Game came out up until now, uh, you know, it's been a good good chunk of time. Uh, after getting the chance to direct with the outfit, do you plan to direct again anytime soon? Uh, whatever projects can you tell us that you're working on in the future? Um, there is nothing more important to me right now than getting back on a film set and directing another film. I mean, I just loved it so much over the course of, of making this. Um, of the course of making the outfit, I just I, I I fell so in love with the process and the kind of collaborations involved. So it's there's nothing more important to me. Um, there's actually I'm I'm staring at a script on my hard drive right now that I'm coming towards the end of. Um, that's uh, a bit different. I can't really talk about it, but it's it is um, it is staring me dead in the eyes right now, and I, I cannot wait to get to put it up in front of the cameras ASAP. That's really excellent. I'm very, very excited for you, especially because this movie was, uh, a, a very, like I said, a very entertaining watch. So can't wait to see what you do next, Graham. And thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, really appreciate it. This has been lovely. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with the writer and director for The Outfit, Graham Moore, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. The Outfit is releasing in theaters on March 18th from Focus Features. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.